conclude with um, a discussion on the gift of tongues and the interpretation of them and how they all interconnect. Our um, youth and vespers pastor, uh, Pastor Brian, uh, at, at our Tuesday night meeting, referred to this upcoming message that Brad was going to give as it's going to be an edgy one this week. And so that's uh, kind of the world of youth. But uh, don't worry, uh, Brad is, uh, Lord willing, going to be back next week, and he'll um, get back into that uh, conclusion of of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Speaking of Vespers, if I can do a a crass uh, advertisement for Vespers. Um, If you're single between the ages of, say, 18 and 35, you need to go at least check out Vespers at 6.30 on Tuesday night. And then once you check that out, you'll find out all the other things that they're doing, everything from serving in the community, serving here at this church, fellowship, and all kinds of things uh, among themselves. It is a great group. I've been doing this church stuff for, and I've I've told them this, I've been doing this church stuff for about 35 years now. and And I would say of all the groups that I've been a part of, that this group, um, truly reflects the community that Jesus Christ wants us to have in our in our small groups and and such things. They 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 truly love each other. They minister. You you show up there for the first time, and if you aren't greeted by at least two or three people, I'll buy you dinner. So it's 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 that. Now the pressure's on you guys. So so um so it, it's a it's a great group, and I would encourage you to. To, to check that out. Or if you know someone who fits in that uh, qualifications, uh, you'd be happy to do it. They've been gracious enough to my wife and I to let, that, let us join them and, uh, and Pastor Brian and his wife, Rochelle. So, so I've been on the schedule now for the last few weeks. It's, um, as always, Brad's sermons tend to grow. And so I was supposed to speak here a couple of weeks ago, and, and his message got added on to. And, and, and then I was really planning to speak next week, and I, so I got the text yesterday morning to, um, you know, are you ready for tomorrow because of the flu? And, and I'm such a procrastinator. I knew what I was wanting to talk about, but um, I didn't have it written down yet. So um, um, it, I, I probably would have been doing the same thing Saturday next week as I did yesterday. The only one I really feel bad for is my wife because, you know, she had things planned for Saturday with us and, and it got sabotaged. So you can say something to her to console her. Uh, but my message has been rumbling around in my head for the for the last couple months, and then when I was told or asked if to speak, um, um, you know, after Brad's series on the gifts of the Spirit, you know, I was really excited about it because um, I believe that what we will be looking at this morning um, is a, is an applicable conclusion to the thorough discussion on the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Brad has been um, going through for for us as believers and for the church as a whole. Now, a passage of Scripture that Brad has been using often through this series lays out the purpose of the gifts, and it's found in uh, 1 Peter 4.10. If you turn there or they'll put it up on the screen for you. 1 Peter 4.10, it says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. This passage states that the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to each believer in Jesus Christ 
is to use them to serve others. This morning, I'm going to take a, a different variation on this rather than what the gifts are or what you are supposed to do with them. I will be sharing what God's words, uh, and specifically from the lips of Jesus himself, what will happen to the person who exercises his gifts in serving others and the church. Just so I don't want to leave anyone hanging here because I got a little bit more to talk about before I get into it, uh, you know, I, I want to tell you right up front what it is, what God's going to do for you if you exercise your gifts in serving others. Here it is. Happiness. God will give you happiness. Straight from the lips of Jesus himself, that if you become a servant of others, happiness will be yours. Now, we'll be looking at the scriptures in a few minutes, but how many of you are into happiness? Boy, probably about just a third of you. I don't know. We we must have a room full full of Scrooges or something. So how many of you are into happiness? Okay, okay, good. You know, just saying the word happiness puts a smile on your face. I just realized this as I was as I was preparing for this, puts a smile on your face. So this is your assignment. Tell your neighbor to the left and the right of you that you are into happiness. So tell your neighbor you're into happiness. So am I right? Doesn't it put a smile on your face when you say that? So so I believe the number one desire of, of people in our culture today is to be just that, is to be happy. The difficulty, however, is that happiness is not easily attainable. For example, in the Declaration of of, uh, Independence, um, it guarantees that the government will protect our our life and our liberty. And what will it guarantee regarding happiness? The pursuit of. It doesn't guarantee us happiness. It will guarantee us life. It guarantees us liberties but only guarantees us the right to pursue happiness. Our founding fathers knew that they could not guarantee happiness, but only the right to pursue it. But you know what? Jesus Christ is about ready to promise you happiness. In our culture today, happiness comes in in many ways and is called by different things. Someone may say, you know, if I can just get a different job, I'll be happy. Some may say, hey, if I can just get a job, I'll be happy. A single person may say, you know, if I could just find the right spouse, I'd be happy. You know, the same number of them are married folks who say, man, if I can just get rid of that bum of a husband of mine, I'll be happy. Or if I can get rid of that nagging wife, I'll be happy. Some will say, if I could just find some money, wealth, riches, I'll be happy. I told this story at my uh, life group that I attend on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, I attend uh, the Michael Moore uh, life group. Uh, my wife goes to a woman's study on Wednesday night. But the Michael Moore life group, it's led by Michael Magali and Paul Moore. So they call it the Michael Moore group. But um, And their wonderful wives, Shannon and Jolie. But I told this story that this poor lady, godly lady, she was married to this man that, I mean, this man was into pursuit of riches and wealth. 
and he just figured that the, he needed more and more, and the more he could get, the happier he would be. Well, it never worked, so he just continued to pursue more and more wealth. And in his safe, he had, you know, he kept on his shelf, you know, a stack of cash, you know, a stack of bullion, gold bullion, and the majority of his wealth was in um, negotiable bearer bonds. You know, that you can get that in pretty high denomination. So the bulk of his wealth was in this stack of uh, uh, negotiable bonds. And his health was failing. This, this man's health was failing. And um, he uh, called his wife in. He was talking to his wife. He said, I want to take this money with me when I die. Looks like I only have a couple more weeks to live. I want you to vow that you will put that money in my casket. And so he was talking to his pastor, and his pastor didn't really know what to say to her. But um, So the man finally died. They had the funeral. It was an open casket funeral. And uh, at the beginning of the service, the lady and her son walked in with this box, and they gently put it in the casket. And uh, the pastor at the end of the service went up to the woman and said, did you put that money in that casket? She said, yeah, I did. I said, I had no idea you were going to actually do that. You know, you, you really, you put all that money in that casket? And she said, yeah, every last dime of it went into that casket. I wrote him a check. Um, so, uh, um, Billy Graham uh, tells the story of a, of, of in one of his books of, of men who uh, pursue fame. He tells the story of a, a, a successful politician. He doesn't give us the name, but um, he reached the highest pinnacle in, in politics and also had accumulated quite a wealth. And on his dying bed, Billy Graham writes that this is what this man said to him on his deathbed. Life has lost all meaning I am ready to take a faithful leap into the unknown. So fame didn't do it for this guy either. You know, the, the, the drugs we take show how we feel or about happiness. Uh, a gentleman by the name, uh, Dr. Dworkin, he's a Maryland anesthesiologist and senior fellow at Washington's Hudson Institute. And he wrote a book titled Artificial Happiness, The Dark Side of the New Happy Class. And in this book, he writes that doctors are now medicating for unhappiness. Too many people take drugs when they really need to be making changes in their lives. And he quotes from the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. And in 2005, they looked at the 2.4 billion drugs that were prescribed in visits to doctors and hospitals. And of those, 118 million were for antidepressants. Those are drugs that, for in a layman's term, are to make you happy. Uh, high blood pressure drugs were the next most common with 113 million prescriptions. And between 1995 and 2002, the most recent year for which statistics are available, the use of these drugs rose 48%, the, the CDC has, um, was quoted as saying. So happiness or the lack of, um, of it is obviously something that is plaguing our, our culture. We all should be motivated this morning to hear what Jesus has to say on this topic 
that was given to us some 2,000 plus years ago. So turn to your, in your Bibles to John 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. It's going to be up on the screen. Now, before I, I read it, before we read it, I want to give you a little background on this passage. Jesus and his disciples, are, they're up in the upper room celebrating the Passover. Uh, we now refer to it as, as communion or, or the Last Supper. And it is the night before his crucifixion. You know, I, I think that is extremely telling. Here it is, the night before he was, his betrayal, the night before he was going to, to have to deal with a brutal death, and the, the night before he took upon himself the sins and the wrath of God that each one of us deserves. But here is his final teaching, one of his final teachings before his death. And I'm, I'm quoting from the King James Version, so uh, unless you have one of those iPhone things, uh, you're going to have to follow along, or maybe some of you have a King James Version. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Now, most uh, later versions of the Bible use the word blessed in there. Both blessed and happy come from the same Greek word. And the overriding um, thought behind those two words is it's something that we receive through a supernatural process. So the supernatural blessing or supernatural happiness that we receive that Jesus is talking to here. Now, as we read these verses, it is clear that the path to happiness has two parts. First, it is knowing certain things. And secondly, it is in doing them. Both. Both of these are important. A few months ago, after the, the stock market crashed in 2008, I was talking to the CFO of, of one of my, my clients, and I knew that he belonged to um, uh, an, an informal group of other CFOs in, in the particular industry that, that his company does business in, and, and these CFOs get together every month or so to kind of talk about regulatory issues and stuff that impact their industry, even though they're competitors, they still meet like this. And, and they also, as a fun thing, they're, they being number crunchers are, are into, obviously, numbers and, and the stock market. And they had kind of a, a, a part of this time together was informally they had an investment club. And so at the beginning of each year, they'd start off with a sum of money, and then they would see who's who's going to accumulate the most wealth or lose the least amount of money. And that person won. Uh, You know, I don't know what they had to do. They probably had to buy dinner for the rest of them. But um, a couple months after the stock market crashed in 2008, I asked him because I knew he was involved in this thing. Well, how's your investments doing? And he said, not very good. And he he paused and he said, you know, ironically, we, uh, you know, the, the seven of us met about you know a few weeks before the the the, the major turnaround or the major drop in the in the stock market, and we all were talking about that the the the, the price of the, st- the stocks right now are, are, are not sustainable, that there there's going to be a correction and, and could be a very significant correction, which in fact turned out to be, 
Each one of these guys, these CFOs, uh, you know, stated the same exact thing. They all agreed. They all said, yeah, we need to divest, either put them in, uh, in less volatile funds or, or cash them out or whatever. But ironically, ironically, even though all had agreed that that was the best course of action, you know what? None of them did anything about it. They just held their, their, their positions where they were. Obviously, it's a combination of knowing and doing that makes for success. Or to put it in the context of our passage this morning, it's a combination of knowing and doing certain spiritual things that leads to true happiness. We will look at both of these. But first of all, what does Jesus want me to know about happiness from this passage? There's six things in here. First of all, Jesus wants me to know that he is Lord that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our passage has three references. Uh, Verse 13, master and Lord. Verse 14, Lord and master. Verse 16, the servant is not greater than the Lord. These passages refer to Jesus being the Lord. And the question that must be asked, is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Or does something else, such as another person, Another goal, even yourself, occupy the chief position in your life. Jesus says that he is Lord and we are his servants. But far too many of us have that inverted. Where we are the Lord and we of our lives and we look to Jesus to be our servant. Um, I was kind of confronted with an interesting test to take a few months ago in regards to this that really was convicting to me. And this test was to examine my prayer life, the things that I pray for. And it goes on to say that if Jesus is the Lord of your life and, and if Jesus does love and care for us as much as he does, you would think that that prayer life, that communication with our Lord would be, Lord, you know, am I doing the right thing for you? Am I acting in a proper way towards you? Is there something more or something less that you want me to be doing in my life? When I was examining my prayer life, I realized that, no, there wasn't much of that kind of communication going on with the Father. It was more like, Jesus, can you fix this? Can you help me here? Can you give me this? Can you do that over there? It was dis- descriptive of an inverted relationship where I was the Lord asking him to help me out rather than he being the Lord and my prayer life, my communication with him being, Lord, how can I help you? What can I be doing to be a better and more effective servant for you. Not that there's anything wrong with the request I, I, I just mentioned. God wants to, to meet our needs. He wants us to bring our supplications, the things that burden us to him. But if that is the whole focus of my prayer life, that is indicative of who is the Lord of your life. These first two truths, uh, okay, and the second truth that we need to know from this passage is that Jesus took on a servant role, verse 14. If I then, your Lord and master, 
have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Here is Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the creator God of the universe that who chose to take on the role of a servant. So these first few first two truths that we have now looked at pertain to Jesus being both Lord and a servant in our lives to mankind. Now, the next four truths that we must now know pertain to ourselves. The third truth found in verse 16, that we are not greater than Jesus. We all can easily acknowledge this verbally by our prayers, the songs we sing, and the words that we use. They all state that I am not greater than Jesus. But when we prefer our desires over his desires or think that I can manage either part or all of my life very well, thank you, without him, what are our actions saying? They're saying something totally opposite to to the songs I sing and the things I say verbally. The fourth truth that Jesus wants us to learn from this passage is what is proper for Jesus is also proper for me. Verse 15, where I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. How shall I live? What shall my values be? Where shall I place my energies? We find the answers to these questions by looking to Jesus to see how he lived what he did with his life, what his values were, and where he placed his energies. We can only know the answers to these by looking to who? Looking to Jesus. And we can accomplish this only by reading and meditating on God's word. So the first one, Jesus is Lord. Jesus took on a servant role. We are not greater than Jesus. What is proper for Jesus is proper for me. The fifth point is, is if Jesus took on the role of a servant, we as believers in Jesus need to take on the role of servants as well. Same word for servant in the Greek is minister. We are all ministers of Jesus Christ. I found this this quote in my studies of this passage by a guy by the name of Dr. John Brown. He says, we often make ourselves unhappy by thinking that we are not treated with the deference and kindness to which we consider ourselves entitled. If we would really be if we if we would be really happy, we must think more of others and less of ourselves. True happiness dwells within and one of its leading elements is the disinterested, self-sacrificing love which made the bosom of Jesus its constant dwelling place. Turn to Matthew uh, 20, uh, 25 is a, a passage that echoes what this Dr. Brown said. Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And finally, the sixth thing that we must know. Let's look at verse 16. It states that so far as God is concerned, 
the servant role for us is our eternal calling just as it was for Jesus. It's not an optional thing. Just as Jesus was called, just as Jesus was sent, it is our assignment. It is our divine calling as well. Jesus said in John twenty twenty one, that's the, the great commission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This The word sending here is the same word sending that we find in, in John 13. We in the church make an error when we perform commissioning ceremonies for men who are becoming ordained to the ministry. When we sent, we just had a missionary here, a great man. I, I'm just so impressed with his work here. But when we send missionaries off to full-time work around the world, or even when we send short-term mission teams out for special projects. Now, hear me first before you get upset, but but there's nothing wrong with the actual um, uh, act of recognition. That's a great thing to do for these folks, this act of recognition for individual acts of, of sacrifice and selflessness to go out and to serve others. The error that we do is that we create, in my opinion and from my experience, we foster the idea that this is what they're doing and we're sitting here in the pews watching it all go on. That, that, the, that, that this is something that needs to be performed for every believer in Jesus Christ. Each one of us has a divine calling. calling. Each one of us has been sent to go out and serve others. And we need to put as much emphasis on each one of us here sitting in the pews as we do the missionaries that go off to deepest Africa or the people that commit their whole lives to service to him. Because each one of us have that same calling as well. We are all called to be servants, to be ministers of the gospels to others, no matter where we are going or no matter what our specific task is is if you're sitting in the pews or standing in a pulpit speaking to thousands of souls every week. And so here, each of us who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, we have a divine calling. There's a specific task. Scripture's clear. There's a specific task for you to be fulfilling. And if you don't know about this, and if you're not doing it, why do you think we're not happy? You know, we're, we, we, we've been infused with the spirit of the living God, and we're not doing what he's calling us to do. Do you know these things? Do you, do you, you know, it, it is so important that you know this stuff, that you do have this calling. So now we come to the most neglected part that our passage speaks to. Up to now, we've been talking about the first part of Christ's clue for finding happiness, that is knowing certain things. It's, again, I'm repeating that Jesus is Lord. Jesus took a servant role. We are not greater than Jesus. What is proper for him is proper also for us. We also should be servants. And finally, number six, we are sent with a divine calling to be servants. The second part, which is based upon these things we should know, is that we should go and do them. Verse 17, if you know these things, said Jesus, happy are you if you do them. Obviously, there's more than just knowing. Knowing is important. 
as we have seen, you can't do unless you know what to do. You must begin with knowing, but knowledge is not enough. If all your life is about knowing and there's no corresponding doing, your knowledge is worthless. And if our knowledge of these truths is to use it to lord it over others to get them to do it, then your knowledge in addition to being worthless is badgering and bordering on abusiveness. When we take this knowledge and we put it into action, you will begin the process of developing the kind of character that God himself can bless. We find such character in the, in the Beatitudes found in, in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Where the word again, happiness and blessed, are interchangeable, coming from the same root word in the, in the Greek. Happy or blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy or blessed are they that mourn. Happy and blessed are the meek. Happy and blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Happy and blessed are the merciful. Happy and blessed are the pure in heart. Happy and blessed are the peacemakers. Happy and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. When we hear this, our flesh and the world says, and the little voices that speak in your ear will say, man, this is crazy talk. This does not make sense. Everyone knows that it's not the poor in spirit. It's not the meek. It's not the merciful. It's not the peacemakers or any, any similar type who are happy. Our culture says happy are the winners. Happy are the dominant. Happy are those who are waited upon. But our culture is wrong. The world's way does not work. I'm a big fan of the Drudge Report, and so I look at that, and I looked at it this morning. Um, it's, just, it's just full of the misery and the sadness that is filling our world, filling our nation, and it's all around. It is the words of Jesus that are true, and that is what should be trusted. This is what describes the walk of faith. I look at the walk of faith as, you know, when kids, we used to be on these teeter-totters, and, I, you know, when I would get on one, I'd like to, you know, with my the partner on the other side, you know, where you keep it level, you know. and uh, But, you know, if you scoop back a little bit, You'll go down, or if you scoot forward a little bit, you go up. And, ladies and gentlemen, we are constantly, if you're attuned to Christ, being confronted with your divine calling to go out and be servants to others. And when you are being confronted with this, you're sitting on the teeter-totter, the point of decision. And are you going to scoot back? And go down and walk away from your divine calling? Or are you going to scoot up and go up and fulfill the divine calling that God has asked you to do? Whatever the situation may be. This is the work, the walk of faith. 
Two words uh, we have not covered, and I close with these two words, found in verse 16. It says, verily, verily, or other versions say, amen and amen. These are words that are often used by Jesus when he is making pronouncements that go contrary to everything that the world teaches. In our lingo today, Jesus is saying, hey, folks, you better pay attention. The words that I'm about to say are true, and you will be well served to pay heed to them and to do them. You know, Jesus is saying verily, verily to us often, and it's when we're being confronted with opportunities to serve. There are plenty of opportunities here within this church, within your neighborhood, within our community, that you could be lights for Jesus Christ as you sacrifice yourself to serve others. Let me pray for us. Father God, um, help us, first of all, to know these things. Help us to find others if we do not understand them to help us to know these things better. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who, when faced with the t- at the tipping point, that we will scoot forward, we will arise to the occasion to be obedient to your calling in our lives, to be servants to others as we utilize our gifts And Father, I just pray for a bountiful amount of blessings and happiness on each of us as we go about serving you through the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen.